0: All right, First Samuel chapter 21. We pick up where we left off. Ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand these truths which are spiritually discerned. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So, Lord Jesus, would you have mercy upon us and show us uh, wonderful things that you have in store for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, La- Max Lucado is a prolific Christian writer and very famous and uh, the author of many, many Christian books, and he has a very distinct literary style. Now, let me read to you how he described this period of time in David's life as described here in chapter 21. David is on the lamb, a wanted man in King Saul's court, His young face decorates post office posters. His name tops Saul's to kill list. He runs, looking over his shoulder, sleeping with one eye open, and eating with his chair near to the restaurant exit. Now, what a blurring series of events. Wasn't it just two or three years ago that he was tending flocks in Bethlehem? Back then, the big day was watching sheep sleep. Then came Samuel, a ripe old prophet, with a fountain of hair and a flask of anointing oil. As the oil covered David, so did God's spirit. David would be king, but it wasn't going to be easy. David went from serenading sheep to serenading Saul. The overlooked runt of Jesse's litter became the talk of the town, handsome and humble, brave and wise. Enemies feared him. Israel loved him. Michal married him, but the king who could read the writing on the wall hated him. After the sixth attempt on his life, David gets the point, almost literally, Saul doesn't like me. With a price on his head and a posse on his trail, he kisses Michal goodbye, weeps with his best friend Jonathan, and leaves the royal court the place that rightfully belonged to him. And he runs and runs for his life. And and runs, does he ever, it's gonna be 10 years from tonight's verse. Chapter 21 and verse one to chapter 31 and verse four. Unfortunately, he must run until danger is out of the way. And that means Saul must die. So when Saul dies, David can go back to life uh, as it was before, normal. So not all of David's exile experience is recorded here in the 10 chapters, but we get the highlights. The, and, and really the point is we're watching the success of the man who lives for the Lord and the demise of the man who lives for himself. So let's join David as he runs for his life Starting here in chapter 21, where he's sort of been running, but not uh, uh, consistently. Uh, So now as we come to this chapter, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, The palace administration and the army of Israel uh, now knows what's going on. King Saul's trying to rid the earth uh, of Israel's new heartthrob, his rival. So... As of last chapter, at the close of last chapter, Saul's son Jonathan is standing up for his best friend David once again to his father, and his father Saul tries to kill Jonathan for doing so. So now Jonathan is convinced, and both he and David know the sad truth, David has to go and leave everything behind. So the two best friends as of last chapter uh, met one last time, they weep together, they pray together, they promise friendship, not only for a lifetime uh, to one another, but for the f- sake of their families as well. And off David goes down a long, dark road by himself. So let's see where he runs first. First Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest. The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. So let's pause here. Uh, Number one, David goes to church. Uh, Now, this uh, seems to be a pattern with David and any worshipers or anybody in the Bible who's godly. Uh, when they're in trouble, they know where to turn. Now, David has a strong personal devotion uh, to the sanctuary of the Lord. In Psalm 26 and verse 7, he writes, I love your house. I love your presence, Lord. I love the sanctuary. In Psalm 27, David writes, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me upon a rock. Well, guess where he is at Nob at the tabernacle doing just that, hiding himself in God's sacred tent. That's exactly where he is, three miles south, where he has parted a company from Jonathan at Gibeah. So Nob is where the tabernacle, tabernacle is the old school King James word for tent, and it just means dwelling. And we talked about this when we were in the book of Exodus. This is where the portable uh, temple was uh, Parked there at nob the ark of the covenant would be there and all the priests that minister before the lord so you'll remember that prior to the temple being built by solomon who will be david's son there in first kings chapter six a portable movable kind of a prototype of the temple made of a tent With the Ark of the Covenant inside and the holy place and all the furnishings, that was described in Exodus 25. And the Lord said, before you even get to the promised land, you need a place, a sanctuary. And that was the tent, the tabernacle. And uh, that got started, as I mentioned, in Exodus 25. Now, so David's frazzled. He's upside down. He's suffering. And the worst part about it and any suffering is that it's unfair it's really wrongful. He's being slandered. He's being accused of things he's not guilty of doing. Um, he's being lied about. He's being pushed out of what is rightfully his. He's suffering. And so he goes to church. Now, Asaph wrote Psalm 73. David didn't write it, but David experiences the same kind of spirit and heart. In Asaph's life, he said, My foot almost slipped, my experience of being so confused and frustrated and hurt in this world. And then in Psalm 73, Asaph wrote, Then I went into the sanctuary and everything made sense in light of eternity. And that's how it should be for us. Things get cleared up when we come into the sanctuary of the Lord because there's corporate worship. The Holy Spirit's at work in ways that he is not at work in other places outside of his assembled people in the sanctuary of the Lord. And for some reason, not all God's people get this. They don't go to Nob. They go to other places, but David, this is the second time David has gone to God's people. You know, the first time he went to where Samuel was at Ramah and there at the school of ministry. So he knows when when he's in trouble, he knows where to go to get a word from the Lord, but not all of God's people get that. I uh, ran into somebody a, a while ago. Actually, Barb and I were together in this place, and somebody bumped into us and, and said, uh, "You know, you haven't seen me for a few months." And and I'm always like, you, "You know, I'm just walking here or I'm shopping. I I'm not, you know, I'm not following you. Trust me." <laughs> uh, and and she says, I, "I've just really been going through it now." for the life of me before the lord i'm trying to think of why you would withdraw from the sanctuary when you're really going through it now i can understand certain uh common sense things going on but i find that to be a a common problem with god's people you know many years ago on a wednesday night uh There were two young adults who, instead of coming into the sanctuary at the start of the service, they went out on the parking lot, and and it was very visible to people. So one of the youth pastors went out and asked them what was going on. And uh, one of them said, she just had a horrible day, and she just needed some encouragement. And so the youth pastor wanted to know, well, why wouldn't you want to worship the Lord? And did you know that the sermon's about facing our trials with God's strength and power? That's the message. And, and you're outside of the sanctuary. Why do we do that? Um, it's in all of our sinful natures that want an excuse to come out from under the authority of God's word. So we have to be very careful about that. Now, one quote, one writer put it this way and then we'll move on. When we withdraw from the sanctuary, when things aren't going our way, it's more about perhaps a subtle rebellion whether we recognize that or not or even spiritual warfare which with we're not quite aware. So Ahimelech, then, is Eli's great-grandson. If you remember 1 Samuel chapter 1, back to the days of Eli, his great-grandson is Ahimelech. And he's freaked out there in verse 1. He's shaken about seeing David by himself. Now, why? Well, David's pretty famous by now. He's got a lot of authority, and he usually commands a, a troop, troops of a thousand soldiers. Where are they? So uh, commentators say, "Well, David's been crying. He looks disheveled. He he looks upset. He's got puffy eyes. He he looks tired and forlorn and weary. He doesn't even have a knapsack. Where's your sword? Where's your knapsack? Where are your men? Why do you look crazy?" Why do you look like you, you, you're you really upset? He's upset, like, is there civil war about to break out? What's happening? And so uh, David is like, no worries. Check out this cryptic answer here in verse two. He says, I'm on a mission for the king, and he let me know it's a private matter. Now, in defense of David's integrity, commentators remind us that Jonathan in last chapter said hey the lord is sending you out kind of in a sense of a mission and so uh ahimelech means the name means my king my god and so when he sees ahimelech my king my god david is seeking well my king my god has sent me on a mission and it's kind of a private affair and my men, I've, I have them meeting me in a separate place. Well, where are they? Well, we, you'll meet them meeting him at the cave of Adulla next uh, chapter. So it's possible that he's not just panicking and saying things uh, that aren't true. So it seems like David's trying to walk that fine line uh, to keep the matter private without outright uh, deception, so the pastors had a couple questions for David. We call, I call him a pastor. He's a priest. And now David has a couple questions for the pastor, verses 3 through 6. Now then, what do you have on hand? David's speaking now to the priest. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered, David, I, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So Roman numeral number one was David goes to church, and now number two, David receives nourishment at church. Well, in keeping with the obvious spiritual application, David is going to get refreshed here, some bread and sustenance in the house of the Lord. Now, David needs food. Literally, the Hebrew says, uh, what's under your control? Um, What's in your power to grant? And then followed by the request, give me five loaves of bread. Now, interesting in verse 4, no, I don't have any personal provisions to give you. Interesting. Interesting. There are many priests in attendance at the tabernacle, many, all 20, 30 people. He says, the refrigerator's empty. The cupboards are bare. Don't have anything to give you. Nothing to give. Warren Wearsby. If the people would have been bringing their tithes and offerings to the tabernacle as the Lord had commanded the Jews, there would have been more food available, but it was a time of spiritual decline in the land. And so regarding the obligation to the ministry in the Old Testament, everybody always brought something. Nobody appeared before the Lord ever empty handed that was sort of the rule it didn't have to be a lot if they couldn't afford it the new testament rule is the same for ministry you have no ministry without offerings period and the the, the new testament rule on giving is that it is 1 keeping with your income 2 consistent 3 cheerful those are the only uh uh Not rules, but principles of giving in the New Testament. So to contemporize this verse, he says, our cupboards personally are empty, but there's communion supplies in the church pantry. Hmm. Now, so the consecrated bread. I've got a slide. You'll remember this from the book of Numbers in Exodus. In the holy place, uh, the Lord said to Moses, make sure that there's always 12 loaves of bread. So there'd be 12 loaves of bread when you came into the holy place across from the golden lampstand was this gold-laden table that was built especially to hold the bread. And the bread was called uh, the bread of the presence. It, it's, it's a hard word in Hebrew. Uh, uh, the King James has show bread. And what it means is it's the bread of Hebrew bread of faces it's that's why it's called the bread of the presence whose presence his face and your face together over a meal signifying from god's point of view he's not mad at anybody he wants to break bread and in that culture that meant friendship loyalty and reconciliation this was the point and of course the deeper point thank you for that The deeper point of the bread was uh, that Jesus would appear and call himself the bread of heaven that gave himself for the life of the world. In John chapter uh, 6 and verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, speaking about his sacrifice on the cross, so uh, so verse four. Yeah, uh, there's communion bread that only priests are supposed to eat. Uh, they could serve bread, and they would at all of the times you bring a sacrifice. A portion of that sacrifice, whether you brought bread and you were supposed to bring bread, or uh, an offering of meat, you retained part of that offering, and you sat down, and there was a meal, a communal meal. And and so that, but this bread was not for the general populace. This was for the priests alone. So, what does he say in verse four? He says, Yeah, you know, we have communion bread. I mean, if you're going to eat communion bread, uh, have the guys been behaving themselves? And so he says, Yes, uh, they have been, as is our custom when we go out fighting the battles of the Lord, we're fighting. We're not carousing. That's what that verse means. And he also goes on to say kind of a paraphrase to set the priest's mind at ease. He says, we're God's servants. We're doing his work. We belong to God. And then he says, even when it's secular work, we Israelites belong to God. How much more today when God is obviously involved directing me in this urgent affair? Now, before we move on, just interesting, in Matthew 12, our Lord Jesus will use this verse to justify his own actions when the Pharisees come and uh, start complaining to him that he's breaking the religious rules by letting his disciples who were hungry eat the grain in the fields in an unorthodox way. Uh, that is in Matthew chapter 12. I love it because they say, hey, uh, Jesus, your disciples are doing what's unlawful. And, and Jesus says, have you not read First Samuel chapter 21 where uh, David eats the bread that's only supposed to be for the priests? And the whole point was, look, human need is more important than religious tradition. That's Jesus' point there. Very interesting that he used that passage. Okay, verses 7 through 9. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. David said, and there's none like it. Give it to me. (laughs) Yeah, there's none like a giant's sword it must have been a giant sword all right David goes to church David is nourished in church and guess what number three David is equipped by the church Hmm. well interesting it's not just bread uh, that David needs David needs a weapon and he finds it in the sanctuary now while David will not raise a finger to who he calls the Lord's anointed this guy is after him He says, listen, God has put him in this position. It is not my business to kill who God anointed. Last I heard, God put him there. I'm not going to be the one to take him out. He could die in battle. God could take him out himself, but it's not going to be my hand that, that does it. But he will protect himself. He's not going to kill him with the sword he will defend himself and there are enemies out there he needs a weapon so before we get to the sword and david gets to his question about a weapon we're introduced to a villain you don't know he is one but he's a ruthless uh, villain indeed doeg now we find out a couple basic facts about him before we meet him later number one he's a servant of saul so he's in the service of the wicked king Number two, he's not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. Now, do you remember the nasty Edomites? In Numbers chapter 20, the children of Israel were on their way back to the promised land. And uh, they asked permission to the government at Edom. They said, hey, we we need to cut through your property. Uh, We won't even look to the right or to the left. We have our own provisions. We won't take a thing from you. We won't even set our foot on a blade of your grass. We just need to get through to the land God's given us. And they said, try it and we'll kill you. Those are the Edomites. So we've got one of them. And thirdly, he saw Saul's chief shepherd, which leads commentators to believe they know what detained before the Lord means. Apparently, to keep his job, working as a foreigner, as chief of the shepherding staff for King Saul, he's become ceremonially unclean. And, you know, if you touch, come in contact with a carcass or something, a dead body, which he probably did, he'd have to go and get right at the temple. Now, so it's very interesting uh, because uh, here he is. He's a, a terrible villain. And King Saul probably sent him out saying, hey, we, in this administration, we do things right. And we want to be pleasing to the Lord as he's trying to kill David, a man after God's own heart. Religious people are notorious for being some of, some of in the Bible, some of the most wicked people are crossing their T's and dotting their I's, religiously speaking. It just reminds me of, I think it's John 18 where the Jews are leading Jesus to Pilate to have him crucified. And John 18 says this, they wouldn't go into the Gentile palace because they didn't want to, quote, defile themselves so that, quote, they could eat the Passover meal. So they're leading God the Son to be condemned to be crucified slandering them him out of envy jealousy and all kinds of sinful things but they're making sure that they're pleasing god by not stepping foot into a gentile's courtyard you see that's a terrible thing about religion outward religion kills the bible says it's about the spirit of a new heart so be careful about that. Pride, jealousy, and envy will make you spiritually crazy. Now, David asks the priest for a spear or a sword in verse 9. He says, Hey, just so happens that we have the sword from Goliath. Maybe you'd recognize it. It's the one you used to hand him his head, <laughs> as it were. So it's all wrapped up behind the ephod. Uh, Take it. It's all yours. And David's pretty happy. He says, hey, there's nothing like that sword. I'll take it. Now, here's the spiritual application. Pastors do two things for the person who comes to the sanctuary. They nourish and feed us the word of God, and they also equip us for Christian service to fight the good fight by that same word taught and preached bread and a sword In the house of the Lord. All right. John 21 and verse 17. If you want to check my references on this. And Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 12. Now let's finish the chapter. So with bread in hand and a giant sword on his hip. David's on the run again. Now this is very intriguing. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish. King of Gath. Yes. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. <laughs> Ew. Akish <laughs> said to his servants, look at the guy, he's insane, why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Well, all right, here we go. David goes to the church, was one. Where he's nourished was two, and equipped is number three, and now finally number four, David goes into enemy territory. Now, sometimes when we get overwhelmed, we get turned upside down. We take a misstep, and we start thinking crazy things. Maybe maybe I need to be on the other side. Maybe the other side has the answers here. Maybe I could work for them. Maybe I can go back to... The enemy, just terrible things, but we do get those thoughts in our head. And it looks like it's a pretty big misstep for David. Now, Gath ought to jar your memory a little bit. Gath is where Goliath is from. So when you meet Goliath back in the day in 17, it's a Goliath of Gath. So he's gone to the place with Goliath's sword, which com- <laughs> which commentators say it probably is what made him think of Gath. Now he said, what is he thinking? He's thinking a couple things. Now he's thinking uh, maybe Doeg has got that look in his eye and he's going to go back to King Saul and he's going to kind of, as they say, rat me out. He's going to go and and spill the beans. And now people are going to be in danger. Where can I go that won't jeopardize my friends and family and fellow Israelites? I can go to Philistia, the land of the Philistines, right? I mean, that's where would Saul ever think of coming to Philistia to find me? No. And and he, and he might have thought, as he's thinking that, Gath, Goliath, I'll go there. Now, I don't know, nobody knows why he went to the king. He went to the king of the bad guys. And, and people think, because he does it again in a few chapters, that he, he wants to get employed. He, want, he This is what he does. He's a fighter. So he's saying, well, maybe I could just find a place to fight where nobody will ever know where I am and that kind of thing. Nobody can really figure out what he's doing. But he does go there. But things don't go as planned. And by the way, they never do when we go over to the other side now sometime in the interview with king akish and david the servants of the king kind of connect the dots and maybe they recognize the sword <laughs> on his head and they say boss isn't this the guy they sing songs about the ladies are dancing in the streets going saul saul he's our man if he can't do it this guy, Ken, right here, he's the guy, you know, Saul with the thousands. This guy here, boss, is the tens of thousands guy. And we got him right here. Somewhere along the line, the door gets slammed. The eyebrows are all arched. The room gets very quiet. And loudly, the bolt goes across the The door because Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are born out of this experience, and it says the day he was captured in Gath by the Philistines. So something happened, and in the next verse, chapter 22, and verse 1, it says he escapes from Gath. So something's not quite clear in our text, but we know from all the other texts that something went wrong. And now he's either under house arrest or they've locked him up. This is where he starts to panic and he starts a little show. Uh, And he's uh, in Hebrew acting like a madman is the same phrase for drunkenness or beside yourself in terror or a chariot driven wildly and out of control. So what is he doing? He starts scratching the walls or drawing on it. could be either. And so he's making marks on the wall and he's letting the jewel come down the corners of his mouth. Now, I guess you got to do what you got to do. But Achish's response, I love it. It's the funniest line in the, in the whole chapter. He says, and I paraphrase, seriously? I don't have enough crazies in my own kingdom that you guys are importing them now and that into my own living room? Please give me a break, guys. So this is how I picture how this came about. I like to think, what was David thinking when he suddenly thought, you know, just play like you're insane. Well, he was probably thinking, here I am, the doors just went, and they all looked at him like, you're the guy, you, let me look at that sword. Hey, that sword looks familiar. It's a little extra long on you anyway. Let me take a look at that. And so David's thinking, this is insane. I came here to them. I'm signing up with King Anchor. How crazy. This is insane. How crazy. How insane. How crazy. How insane. How crazy. How insane. Uh, All right, so he just... That's how I pictured. it. Okay, if you got a better idea, then come on up here. Now, I like what well, one writer said, when you do something crazy, like go to be with the enemy, crazy behavior isn't far off. So he panics. And so what is he saying by his behavior? I'm harmless. I'm pathetic. I'm out of my mind. I'm not a threat to you. And the plan worked by the grace of God. And both Psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, over and over again say, and David was afraid. This was born out of sheer panic. But the Lord didn't save him because of his ingenuity. Both of those Psalms say it was God's power, God's strength, God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. And then I love this line, my soul will boast in the Lord. So as I bring my remarks to a close, um, we're learning some pretty invaluable things watching this guy suffer. And as I've been saying, the key to having a blessed life, because in this life you will suffer. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Uh, And Acts chapter 14, verse 27 says, through many troubles, we must enter the kingdom of God. We're going to have troubles. Here's the key to being blessed through it. Worship your way through them. Now, when I've been saying that, I am not saying to sing or make music necessarily. Because it's so much more than that. It, worship here, and let me tell you, during these 10 years of him running, he's written the following psalms. That are directly linked to these 10 years of running and hiding in caves and living with uh, all of this strife. Psalm 7, Psalm 11, 12, and 13. Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. Psalm 22, Psalm 25, Psalm 31. Psalm 34 and 35. Psalm 52, Psalm 53, Psalm 54. Psalm 56. 57, 58, and 59, Psalm 63 and 64, Psalm 142, and Psalm 143, all tied to these 10 chapters. Instead of blaming God, giving up, falling away, withdrawing from the sanctuary, rejecting God, uh, being filled with unbelief, becoming bitter, cynical, taking matters into his own hands. Instead of all of that, he's going to worship. And here's the key about worship. The word worship, shaka in the Hebrew, it simply means to bow down. It means to surrender. It means to the good times and the bad, whatever's happening, however i'm interpreting it however i'm hearing it in my head i've submitted i've accepted i'm his i don't blame him i'm not withdrawing i'm not disobeying i'm not making excuses i'm not going to take a little holiday i'm just 100% his 24/7 because i'm a worshipper i i lay my life down upon the altar as a living sacrifice no matter what's going on that that is worship Thankful, prayerful, hopeful, surrendered. It's just drawing near to God, pouring out your heart, leaving the matter to him. Some of those Psalms are, are so honest. God, what are you doing? God, how long will you forget me? God, why is the bad guy being blessed and the good guys are failing? The point, he and other worshipers just draw near to God. They pour out their hearts and they leave the matter to him, but they remain broken and surrendered and faithful. No matter what. No matter what. That's worship. So all through the dark nights, he's saying into the night hours, he's reflecting and he's praising, he's humming a little bit, and he's writing in his journal and, That's how he gets through it. That's how we all get through it. And the more of our heart that's given over to worship, the more blessed we will become. In your adversity, in your trouble, are you worshiping your way through? That's the question for tonight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's so simple just to respond to you in love and when the outer circumstances come to test us and that's why they're called trials they're testing to see are we going to worship or not are we going to withdraw or are we going to bow down father help us to be like David not perfect He made a lot of mistakes but he was a worshiper And he was after your own heart, and you blessed him. Help us, Lord, because anybody in this room could be like that. You don't need more Bible knowledge. You don't need more money. You don't need anything else except a heart that wants to love God and surrender to him. So help us, Father. It's so easy and so hard at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen.